Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. How many of you are, ter- are familiar with the term FOMO? Show of hands. You know what FOMO means. Okay, okay. Not all of you. Either that or your hands don't work. Um, FOMO, for those who don't know, stands for fear of missing out. Fear of missing out. I want to show you, uh, uh, I have, before they play this thing, I'm not advocating for the product that they sell. If you like it, that's great. I just want you to watch this commercial, and, and they're not sponsoring this church. They're not sponsoring this service. This is not sponsored by Realtor.com or anything like that, okay? But watch this commercial about FOMO. Check this out. Realtor.com sends you speedy home alerts for new homes that hit the market. So, no more fear of missing out. It's been six minutes since you last checked to see if any new homes came up on the market. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Hey, hon. We got a live one, three bedroom with a walk-in closet and a playroom. There's probably a better one that's also cheaper. The asking price is right in our budget, and the Realtor.com home value estimate checks out. This is impossible. Ah, went ahead and scheduled a tour for tomorrow morning. I quit. Go to Realtor.com or download the app for speedy. I guess it ends right there. Um, first thing I want to, to note, did you notice what the asking price that's right in her price range is? $418,000. Clearly, they're not my friends. <laughs> so we laugh about that. If you Google like commercials with FOMO, there's a bunch of them. Like uh, you can watch, and, and there's a bunch of people sort of trying to take advantage of this fear of missing out idea. And yet, the, the National Institute of Health says it's a real thing, that FOMO is a real thing. It's actually a thing uh, that people suffer from. The National Library of Medicine says FOMO is a term that was introduced in 2004, but it came more widely popular after 2010. Now, what happened in 2010? I have no idea. I joined Facebook, I think, in 2010. I have regretted it ever since. Um, I'm still there. But... What they say is that FOMO is attached to our disordered attachment to social media. That it's actually social media and the, the, the advent and the, the continuation of social media that has created this idea of FOMO, a fear of missing out. And, and what you probably already know, because I know a number of you and we've had conversations, is this idea of like social media as something that is bad for you it's like, you all know this. You still use it, but you know that this is something that's not good for you. And the reason it creates FOMO, a fear of missing out, is because what you see in everyone else's stuff is their highlight reel, right? Every time you want, look, scroll through your feed, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, whatever, whatever your, whatever your you know, drug of choice is, uh, I said that on purpose, um, you see other people's highlight reel. Right? You see the best of their lives. Most people don't say, well, today got divorced. Snapchat. Right? You see everyone else's highlight reel. And the problem with that is, in comparison, your life doesn't look near as exciting. 
And what ends up happening is you say, maybe there's a better life out there for me that I'm missing. Because I see all these people, they're on a cruise to the Bahamas. It's amazing. There's these people on a beach, and this beach looks pristine. I must be doing something wrong. Somebody posts their promotion. It's like, well, maybe I need a new career path. Somebody goes to the bar and finds a new, I don't know, person they're dating. What do you, it's not really, I don't know what you call it anymore. Um, but find somebody that they're so excited about, right? You complete me, if you know the reference. And you go, well, maybe I am missing out on somebody that would be better for me over and over and over, right? And this idea of fear of missing out, we, I became aware of this phenomenon when, when Jerry and I moved here to plant this church. 2014, so this is 10 years, by the way. Um, 20, <laughs> come on. You'll be more excited in a little while. Um, 2014, we moved here. Of course, you know, most people didn't know who I was. Some people knew who Jerry was because she's from here. And we're trying to get people to gather, to, to build this church, and we're going to, like, have this community of faith. And so everything we did, we advertised on Facebook, right? So we created, you know, you can create events, and you can invite every Facebook friend that you have. And so my strategy, some of you are going to, like, I'm letting you in on the inside, so don't share my secrets. My strategy was to become Facebook friends with as many people as I could in Altoona so that we would have an event and I would invite you to my event. Everybody thinks less of me now, I can tell. Um, but we would have an event and we would invite 500 people to a backyard cookout, right? And what happens? Of the 500 people that we invited to the backyard cookout, 17 of them would say, yes, I'm coming. 12 of them would say, no, I'm not coming. And 475 would say, maybe, or nothing. Right? 475 people are either in the, like, maybe or no response category. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe you are better at this than I am. Um, if you've ever tried to buy enough burgers to make sure that you feed everybody, there's a huge difference between... 17 and 475. We learned this lesson the hard way several times. <laughs> More times than I would care to admit. Um, we ended up with freezers full of stuff because we thought, well, it says 17, but there's so many that are, they're probably coming. And what happens? Why does this happen? Because everybody wants to say as close to yes without saying yes, right? Isn't that what you wanna do? You want to tell people, somebody's like, hey, you should come to my house for dinner tonight. And it's like, there's going to be some people here. We're going to play games, whatever. What's the response? Maybe. Oh, yeah, I'll probably be there. Yeah, that sounds great. Let me think about it. Because we all want to say as close to yes as we can without having to actually say yes, just in case something better comes along. Don't we want to do that? Don't you see this? Like, those of you who have tried to invite people to things... You have seen this, haven't you? Like, anybody tried to have a wedding in the last five years? Handful of you in the back row, yes. If you have tried to plan a wedding, how frustrating is it to go, hey, we sent out 300 invites, and people are like, oh, yeah, I'll put it on my calendar. That's not saying I'm coming, by the way. Oh, yeah, that's exciting for you. 
That's not saying I'm coming. Oh, I might be able to be there. That's not saying I'm coming. And then it gets to a couple days. This is, I'm convinced, is what creates so much stress for brides. Because you get to a couple days before and you're like, we don't really actually know how many people are coming. And the reason we do this is because we're all terrified at some level, maybe not all of us, many of us are terrified to say absolutely, unequivocally, yes, I'm going to be there. And the reason we're afraid is because we lack conviction because what we're afraid is actually going to happen is something better is going to come along. And so we hesitate and we, we, we delay and we don't make a yes decision or a no decision. We try to make a hmm decision. And the reason is because we're afraid that if we make a decision, we're going to discover later that we made the wrong decision. So better no decision than the wrong decision. And what's interesting is, is the reason for maybe could be that something better comes along, or it could be that your party's at 4.30, and at 4.25, I go, man, I just feel tired. I'm just going to lay down and take a nap. Or I'm going to put Netflix on and let it run for a while while I eat Cheetos. Right? You buy the big bag. The thing that we struggle with is conviction. But what I would say is probably true is we admire people who have conviction and make decisions, right? Don't you admire those people who can just say unequivocally yes? You admire them whenever they're coming to your party, don't you? Like, oh, thank you so much. You know, what's so powerful to me about this group of people that just came up here and said, yes, I'm partners with this church, is that these people have said, absolutely, this is my place, I'm here, you got me, whatever, whatever we are doing together, I'm in. That's a big deal. That's conviction, right? That's, that's saying, I'm not saying maybe, I'm saying, yes, I'm here. We admire those people. And yet the same thing that we admire in other people, we struggle with ourselves, don't we? We struggle with having conviction to actually make a decision about something. And every time we make a decision, we have this sort of like weird feeling in the background, like, ah, was that the right decision? And we worry about it, don't we? How do we become people who can have conviction? We began this series a couple weeks ago, beginning of the year, called Finding the Power to Change. And what we're doing is we're looking at Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. It's largely known as the fruit of the Spirit, and it's the anchor for the series. I'm going to read it again. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Today, we're going to look at faithfulness, and what I want to do is deal with this question of how do I know I'm doing the right thing? How do I know I'm doing the right thing? Let's pray, and then we're going to look at Scripture together. Would you pray with me? So, Lord, I thank you, thank you, thank you for your grace and for your nearness. I thank you for baptism and, and uh, the fact that, that Will has taken this step into to, to walking more closely with you, this, this step of obedience. And so, Lord, we just thank you. Lord, I thank you for all those who are partners in, in the ministry that you've called us to do. I thank you, Lord. I thank you for faithfulness. I thank you for steps of conviction. And Lord, yet we come today knowing that there's lots of places in our lives where we struggle to have that kind of conviction. And so, Lord, as we look at your word, would you come? 
Would you give us gifts of faith? Lord, would you put your words in my mouth? Fill me now with your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Turn your Bible real quick to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to read the same section that we've read the past couple of weeks, but we're going to look at it again in in a little bit different way. Galatians chapter 5, just so that we have the context, we're going to begin at verse 16. And it says this, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. You know, we all want this ability to act with conviction But the fear that we live with, and maybe we wouldn't articulate this every single time that this happens, but the fear that we live with is that we are going to make all the wrong decisions and we are going to get to the end of our lives and death is going to stare us in the face and we're going to be like, man, I wasted all those opportunities, right? That's actually the fear. And if you're not in touch with that, if you spend some time wrestling with why it is that you struggle to say absolutely yes or absolutely no, if you work it all the way out, the reason that you struggle to say absolutely yes is because you're afraid you're going to make a decision and arrive at the end of your life and have regretted it. That's the fear that stares us in the face. That's what causes us to to struggle. And what's interesting is the younger you are, all of you who are younger, some of you in this room would go, and you. You should point at yourself, Derek. All of you who are younger, project something more by way of confidence than those who have lived longer, right? What I have, I've noticed, I have had conversations with people who have come to me, uh, especially you know, in their teens and their 20s and even into their early 30s, and there's this projection of conviction that's not actually real. It actually comes from a place of fear. There's this, I know what I'm doing, I know what I'm talking about, and me personally, I'm crazy enough to let people who say they know what they're doing try it, and here's what ends up happening as soon as I let people try it, is we discover that this projection of conviction and confidence is actually just a facade. It actually covers a fear that they don't want people to see. So when we're younger, we, pour, we, we, we put out this picture that we are more convicted and more confident than we actually are. Where we discover that that's not true is when we're forced to actually live out of those convictions, when we're actually pushed into it, we actually have to decide. Which is why by the time you get to your mid to late 30s and my age, early 40s, you start to become maybe a little bit cynical. 
You become a little bit cynical. I've got to protect myself. I've got to become a little bit like uh, disillusioned with the confidence that I have projected, the, the ways that I've tried to live into some sort of conviction and it's not worked out for me. The ways that I have said so strongly, how many of you who are my age or older find yourself thinking of things that you said when you were younger and going, man, that was so stupid? Anybody? Like, you get to, yeah, thank you, both hands, I like that, I like that. I don't know if this happens to you, but there are things that when I was in my 20s that I said with such boldness and brashness, and now I'll, I'll be sitting at home, and that memory will come to mind, and I'll be like, oh, man, what was I thinking? I can't believe I said that. I wish I could go back and take that back now that I have some hindsight, and I'm like, ugh. And now, what's funny is I will see people who, were the age, who are the age that I was, and they do the same thing. I just go, okay, we'll see. We'll see, right? This little like sort of, like, I become disillusioned. And maybe you are, you are like me because what we've discovered is over time, there's all kinds of ways that we've tried to put out to the world that we have convictions that we don't really have, right? And we wrestle with this whole thing. And the, the fact of the matter is, is that we're really actually pretty bad about deciding what will make for a good life. We're actually pretty bad at it. This is where the disillusionment comes as you grow up, right? Early on, you say, well, I know what makes for a good life. I just got to look great, right? So I'm going to get like all the good clothes. I'm going to get the chains and the things. And I don't know, do people wear chains? I don't know. People don't wear chains, apparently. I don't. I clearly don't. I never did. Never did. There's not going to be a picture up here to show you me wearing chains. But, but we, we think, well, well, if I just look good, right? If I'm just attractive. And so that becomes the, the decider about what makes for a good life. Let me make sure I look attractive until it doesn't work out for us. And then we're like, well, I don't know. There's these other people who have spent a lot of times trying to be smart. And so then we say, well, let me, let me just make it the thing that makes me look smart. That'll, that'll be the thing that makes for a good life. And I make my decisions based on that. And I have convictions around if I just can be smarter, then I will then I'll have a good life. And then turns out the thing that I have learned is it's a little bit off-putting when you tell everybody how smart you are. People don't like you. You lose friends when you do that. If you haven't learned that, let me say from experience, that's what happens. But then we start like going, man, I'm a little bit extra weight, got these kids. And maybe the thing that will make for a good life is if I join a gym and I eat healthy. And so I'm going to do that thing for a while. And, and I'm going to have all the conviction in the world for joining the gym. I'm going to have all the conviction in the world for working out like I'm a machine. I'm going to have all the conviction in the world for buying like organic everything. Until that doesn't play out. And you're like, I thought I was doing the right thing to make me happy. And so then maybe it's happiness. That's the thing. I just got to decide what will make me happy. And I'll have all the conviction in the world around doing the things that make me happy. Right? Some of you have lived that life. Turns out we're never completely happy. Or, or, or then we're like, okay, well, maybe happiness isn't quite far enough. Let me just live into whatever will give me all the pleasure 
So that's going to be the decider, and I will have lots of convictions about things that give me pleasure. So that doesn't work out. Do you see where I'm going with this? We're actually really, really bad at deciding what will make for a good life. And at the core of all of the reasons we struggle with indecision is this fear that maybe we've chosen wrong. And maybe I'm going to live my whole life. And maybe I'm going to get really close to death. And I'm going to look back and go, man, if I had only just chosen here instead. If I had only just chosen making money. If I had only just chosen taking care of orphans. If I had only just chosen any number of things. And we're going to get to the end of our lives and go, I live with all kinds of regret. That's the fear that makes us indecisive. The Bible offers us something for this. This passage offers us something for this, and that something is faithfulness. Verse 22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, the word here for faithfulness in the Bible is the Greek word pistis. Pistis. It's a fun word. Most of the places in the New Testament, the word pistis gets translated as faith. In fact, if you read the King James, if you have a King James Bible, anybody have a King James Bible? Is that your preferred translation? If you have a King James Bible, in this passage, it translates it as faith. Later translations, they figured out that this is actually intended to be conveying what it is to live a life of faith, faithfulness. So they changed the way that gets translated in future translations to faithfulness. Now, let's talk about what faith is not. What faith is not. Faith is not a blind hope. It's not saying, well, all the evidence is to the contrary, but I'm just, I just have faith. Right? Have you met people like this? There's no evidence, but I have faith. Faith is not a blind hope. There's a, there's a lot of people that I have talked to who, who will say, well, this doesn't make any sense. That's why you have to have faith. You don't do that with anything else. Somehow we can apply that to, to, to faith in Jesus? What is this? This doesn't make any sense. Or it's not a wish, right? Like, I wish I had a million dollars, so I am now going to be in faith for a million dollars. It's a very charismatic thing to say. It's not biblical at all. But we laugh at that because nobody's, well, most people are not praying for being in faith for a million dollars, but people will do that for houses. People will do that for jobs. People will do that for cars. Churches will do that for buildings. It's a nonsensical thing to say. It's, I have a wish. I have decided that I'm going to be in faith for my wish. That's not faith as far as the Bible offers. It's not a projection of our own desires couched in religious language. Faith is not saying, well, this is what I really want. What I really want is to be wealthy, and so I, am, I have faith for wealth. I, what I really want is to, to live in this neighborhood, and so I have faith for this neighborhood. That's not faith. 
That's your own desires couched in religious language. So if those are the things that faith is not, what is biblical faith? Which is what leads to faithfulness. What is biblical faith? Biblical faith is conviction based on evidence that allows for a solid hope. It's conviction based on evidence that allows for a solid hope. Some of you go, wait, what do you mean evidence? The Christian faith following Jesus is a conviction based on evidence that allows for hope. What's the evidence? Jesus was raised from the dead. That's what the New Testament says. That he appeared to people who saw him alive. That he did things as a human being who had been raised from the dead. There's evidence. And we talk about this every Easter, right? Some of you have seen the rhythm. The Easter sermon that I preach is very similar every single year. You're like, all you do is make a case that Jesus was raised from the dead. It's kind of the point. It's kind of the idea. If we want confidence and conviction in making decisions, we make decisions based on something or someone that guarantees the best life possible. If you want to have convictions in every decision that you make, you base all of your decisions based on someone or something that can actually guarantee you the best life possible. Interestingly enough, this is actually what Genesis 1 says is supposed to be the way humans work. Genesis chapter 1, very beginning of the story. I want to read this to you. Verses 26 and 27 say this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals. And over all the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Now, in this passage, if you read through Genesis 1, what you have is, is the creation of a temple. Through the course of Genesis 1, if you read through it, what you see is God has created a temple sort of like ancient Near Eastern temples would be created, that there's an expanse and there's things that get created. And the last thing that you put in any temple is the image, the icon of the God. This image functions two ways. The image represents the God to the people who come to worship it. It has power insofar as the people respond to it. So the image represents the God, and that's, that's number one. Number two, the image actually receives the worship of the people and directs it to the God. That's what an image does. And so in the Bible, when God creates humankind, what he says is, you will rule all creation for me in the way that I would rule it. This is what it is to be an image is to bear the glory of God, to, to rule and reign for God in the world. We're actually designed as human beings to base every decision on what God says. Every decision we make 
is supposed to reflect the intent of God. What it means, you, you, some of you have heard this in churches before, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What does that mean? It means we have failed to reflect the rule and reign of God into the world, and we have failed to sum up the praises of God from the world to Him. That's what it is to, be, to sin, to fall short, is really that we've missed this role that we are intended to play in the world. How did we miss it? The way we miss it is we have tried to decide what is best for our lives. That's it. Every single problem that we can sum up is that what we end up trying to do is we end up trying to say, I'm not going to let God tell me what to do. I think I know better. I mean, that's what the fall is, right? If you skip forward to Genesis chapter 3, it's basically the, the serpent says, God knows that if you eat of this tree, you will be like God. That's always the temptation. The temptation is always to decide we know better from the very beginning of the story. And guess what? As you go through the story from the very beginning and you keep going through the pages, God doesn't give up on that. He says, well, Adam fell short. Eve fell short. Let me call this guy Abraham. I'm going to tell him how this works. And he's going to live this way. I'm going to give a promise to Abraham. Abraham's promise is going to get extended to Israel, which is going to become a nation of people. They are going to have my law. They're going to know how to live this way. And they fall short. So then he offers this sacrificial system. He says, well, maybe if I can make them clean, they'll start living that way. They'll start reflecting my glory into the world. They'll rule and reign the world the way that I would do it. And he never gives up. And then they fall short. And then what happens? The prophets come and they say, hey, you're falling short. Come back. Live the way you were designed. And then they're exiled. And then they come back from the exile. And when they come back, they're convicted again to live under the rule and reign of God, to allow God to tell them what to do. But they fall short again and again and again and again. But God doesn't give up on that. And then we get to the New Testament. And Jesus shows up. And he shows us how to live that way. He shows us how to live to reflect the rule and reign of God into the world the right way. What does Jesus say? He says, I only do what I see my Father doing. That's it. Jesus says, this is how you live as a human being. And every one of us look at Jesus and go, that's how it's supposed to work. Even if you don't follow Jesus, around the world, people are respect Jesus. Because he showed us something about how humanity is supposed to function. I only do what I see my father doing. Which is a reflection of live in connection to God and rule the way he would. So our problem always tracks back to the fact that we think we know better. Think about all the problems in your life. Can you track most of them back to the fact that you think you know better? I know I can. 
I grew up in a Christian home. We went to church all the time. Did all the right things. And when I got to college, I was like, this isn't working for me anymore. I know what will make me happy. And I did all the things. Walked away from all of it. Thought I was making myself happy. Do you know what happened? I got to 2003 and my life was a disaster. It was a mess. I dropped out of several schools. Drunk a lot. All kinds of other problems that we can talk about when it's not going on video. (laughs) Because I thought I knew better. And when I met this Christian group, they invited me to a life of surrender. Nobody likes that. And I thought they were crazy. But what I discovered is that God actually knew what was best for my life. He actually did. And so in February 2003, I went up on a hill at a retreat with these college students. And my prayer was this, Jesus, if you're real, you need to do something with my life because I've made a mess. And that day has changed the trajectory of my life. Why? Because from that day forward, I said, I'm not in charge anymore. As best as I can, I'm going to allow God to direct how I live my life. Now, those of you who have known me that long, a couple, or even a fraction of that, no, that's not how it always works for me. There are still days when I go, no, Jesus, I know what I'm doing. And then I have to come back and go, no, you actually knew better than I did. But that's the invitation because that's how we were designed to work. But here's the problem. If all I said to you was just let God direct your life because he made you, he knows better. That's the source of a lot of religious debate, is it not? Well, who who says? That's just one religious book among a number of religious books. If that's all that, that, that was the basis of it, we would have an argument rather than a step forward. But here's why I know. Why I know that I know that I know that I can trust God's direction for my life. Here's why I know. Because the thing that we all bump into as we're trying to make our own decisions, is the fact that we might get to the end of our lives and realize that when we die, we've wasted our lives, right? Isn't that the fear? Isn't that the fear we all live with eventually? Here's why I know I can trust Jesus to direct my life. Because Jesus went into death and out the other side. The thing I'm afraid of, he defeated And he said, if you come with me, you too will go into death and out the other side. Do you know what that means? The fear that I have that I'm going to get to the end of my life and have wasted my life is no longer a fear. Because guess what? Life for me will go on. Death is a momentary blip on the way to eternal life. To living in response to God. 
the thing that we're all afraid of that cause us to, to wrestle with indecision. Like, did I make the right choice? Am I going to get to the end of my life and die and have wasted my life? Can be over because of Jesus. And I said, faith is confidence based on good evidence. There's all kinds of evidence. You can do the, the, the digging if you like or come back on Easter and I will do it for you. There's good evidence that Jesus, who said, I only do what I see my father doing, went into death, died for all the ways that I have fallen short to live this way, and came out the other side. And I can trust him because of that. This means two things. First thing this means is that the invitation of Jesus to himself means that your act of surrender to Jesus allows you to go through death and out the other side. So death is no longer a fear for you when you say, Jesus, I'm going to let you direct my life. You don't have to fear it any longer because that is your destiny as well. Number two, because Jesus went through death and came out the other side, he's qualified to tell me how to live my life. All the other teachers that you've ever, you know, like we get online and we search for who can tell me the right way to decide the things in my life, right? Google. All the things. All the other teachers, when they arrive at the end, that's the end for them. Jesus is the only one that has shown me a path through the thing that I'm afraid of. And because of that, I can trust him. I want to finish by asking you three questions. How would it change your life? How would it change every decision that you make to know that death is defeated and you don't have to be afraid of it anymore? How would that change your life? What if you made a wrong decision? What if you ended up working a job for 10 years that in the end you go, man, that was a terrible choice. If you didn't know that you were going to go through death and come out the other side, it'd be paralyzing, right? I just wasted 10 years of this little bit I get. But if you know that Jesus is directing your life, there's grace for the mistakes that you make and you can trust that Jesus is going to do something with the mistakes that you've made. Second question. How would it change your life to know that you can trust Jesus to direct you into what's best? How would it change your life to know that you can trust Jesus to direct your life? How much less time would you spend agonizing over decisions whenever you said, I'm just going to do whatever Jesus tells me to do? Do you know how much energy you waste trying to make decisions? I mean, maybe it's just me. How much energy you waste trying to figure out the right thing? What if you just said, I'm just going to trust Jesus to direct my life because he probably knows the best? How much energy and time would you save? And how would it change your life to know that in the meantime... Until you go through death and come out the other side, until Jesus returns, that he promises to give you his spirit, 
to, to, that you can internally have him speaking and directing your life so that in any moment you can have God directing your life and that the, the result of having kept in step and listening and taking steps of following the Spirit would actually direct you into faithfulness. That thing we want to actually have conviction about the decisions that we've made, you can have that. It's a fruit of following the Spirit. It's an invitation, friends. How would that change your life to know that you can be in touch with God and allow him to direct you in an in-the-moment kind of way? I don't know about you, but it doesn't seem to me like there's any other choice. You can spend the next however long you have, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, I mean, however long you have. I can keep going by tens till I get to a ridiculous number. You can spend the rest of that time wondering if you're basing your life on the right things. Or you can respond to the invitation of Jesus to surrender and you can walk in conviction knowing that he's leading you the way that your life is supposed to go. Those are your options. Which one do you choose? I know for me, that's not even a choice I would want to make. Like, there's no way that I could ever lead my life into something that I could know for sure would be good. But I know Jesus will. Do you know that? Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.